working. Um, did I mention we're a brand new church? That's just so, um, welcome again to Seven Mile Road Church. My name is Ajay Thomas. I'm a pastor here at this brand new baby church plant that's just getting started. Um, what we do is every Sunday we've been gathering together at 4 p.m. in this room for prayer and study and conversation and community. And then our hope is once a month to gather in this setting for corporate worship together. This is our second preview service. That's what we've been calling them. And going forward, our hope is to have this happen once a month. Uh, and then eventually we'll transition to having this happen every Sunday morning on um, going forward in the fall onwards. But it is a joy to gather with you. Um, as we go, if you have any questions about Seven Mile Road, why a new church, what's church planting, why this room, any of it, um, please catch up with us. We would love to talk with you. Uh, if you've got questions about what you feel like, what is it that you feel like God's trying to accomplish through you, any of that, we love talking about church planting, so come catch up with us. I I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. This is the part of our service where we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. We open His Scriptures and we unfold them to our hearts. And today, we get to consider one of the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, this claim that Jesus Christ literally died and literally, physically, bodily rose from the grave, you're talking about one of the central claims of the Christian faith. You're talking about the linchpin upon which this whole thing hangs. I'm not exaggerating when I say the entire Christian worldview hangs on the resurrection. The resurrection is sort of like that all-important Jenga piece, right? If you've ever played that game Jenga, it's this game where you've got to handle all these blocks and play with all these pieces, and everyone's having fun, and it's a good time, and you're laughing until you get to that one piece, right? The, the piece everyone's been avoiding the whole game, because if you mishandle this one, if this thing doesn't hold, the whole thing comes crashing down. That's the resurrection in the Christian faith. If the resurrection does not hold, well then nothing does. None of it matters. I'm not being dramatic to make a point. I'm telling you the truth. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If that is not true, none of it is. And none of it matters. I mean, just consider what's at stake if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection is not true, if Christ has not been raised, if the dead are not raised again, well then gone is the basis for believing anything that Jesus said. Because among the many incredible claims that he made was the claim that he would be raised from the dead. If the resurrection is not true, if the dead are not raised, if Christ is not alive, well then gone is the basis for believing that we will be raised from the dead. So that means when you bury your father or your mother, your husband or your wife, your family or your friend, you say goodbye forever at the grave. This is it. If the resurrection is not true, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, if the dead are not raised again, well then, gone is the assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, in the passage that we read in the beginning in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In fact, he even goes on to say, and you who have placed your faith in Jesus, you Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. 
if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, well then nothing else matters. But, but, if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, well then nothing else matters. And so today we get to press in to one of the accounts of his resurrection. We're in Luke chapter 24. It's on page 885 of the Black Bibles. And we're looking at a story, the story of the Seven Mile Road. We're going to tug at this story a little bit. We're going to pull at it, and we're going to see if this thing holds, or if what we're left with is a pitiful heap of religious rubble. So we're in Luke 24. We're beginning at verse 13, and we're walking the Seven Mile Road. As you can imagine, this is a story that's particularly close to the heart of this church, it's a, a story we've named the church after. And I'm hoping to show you that that's because our deep hope is that the story of this seven-mile road would become the story of our lives and the story of this church. We're looking at verse 13. I want to just pray and ask God for his help during this time, and then we'll dive into this text together. Father, we, your people gather here for another week. We have not come to hear from man, but from you. And so the 45th verse of Luke 24 tells us that you stood in a room and you opened the minds of your disciples so that they could understand Scripture. That is our exact same prayer for this day, 2,000 years later. That you would be in this room, that you would speak even through me, and that you would open our minds to understand your word. Hear that prayer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, we're beginning at verse 13. It's the passage that Liz read for us. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Alright, let me get you caught up to where we are in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 24, we're going to get the seven-mile road. In the previous chapter... Luke has just finished telling us of the account of the death of Jesus Christ. He walks us through the trial of this innocent man, trumped up on false charges, who was then brutalized and broken and beaten and bloodied and killed on a cross. At the end of Luke 23, we see the dead, cold body of Jesus taken down from the cross and put into a dead, cold tomb by a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. And so that's how 23 ends off. Jesus' dead body is in a dead, dark tomb. But then, chapter 24 starts with the breaking and rising of the sun early on Sunday morning, and the rising of the sun indeed. Because now you have some women who burst onto the scene, and they announce to everyone that Jesus is not dead. He's actually risen from the grave. He's alive. Now you can imagine how unbelievable that sounds today. And it sounded no less unbelievable then. And so we pick up the story in verse 13 with two of Jesus' disciples who've heard this, what seemed to them, ridiculous rumor of the resurrection. And now they're walking seven miles from the city of Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. Now, now I want you to know that these two men represent some of us really well. As you follow them, as you watch them, which is what I want us to do for a little bit today, you're going to see that 
there's some striking similarities between us and them. That they actually represent us really well. For example, if you came into the room, and deep down in your heart, and maybe you can't even mention it out loud, but deep down you've got some skepticism, some questions about this whole Jesus back from the dead bit. If there's just some doubt in your heart, well then you're going to be able to relate really well with the two men in the story. In fact, let's start there. That is that on the Seven Mile Road, first, I want you to see that Jesus meets these men in their doubts. I'll say that again. On the Seven Mile Road, Jesus meets two skeptics, and he meets them in their doubt. These two guys, there's a part of them that is highly skeptical. And I get that. And, and if you're honest, you get that. And most of the people in our city and our culture, we get that. Right? Just last week, we were walking around the block surrounding this church, just walking around the neighborhood, handing out cards to invite people to come to the service. And at one of the houses, I came into a, a, a gentleman who looked at me, I handed him the card, I told him about Easter, and he just had a smirk on his face and a smile, and he said, sure, Easter. Happy holidays, have fun. Right? Now, I'm not dogging him, he wasn't dogging me, but I know what's going on in his mind, right? I mean, Easter, you got the bunny and the eggs and the candy and the kids, and it's a good tale to tell your children, but no rational thinking person is going to buy the idea that a guy dies and he comes back to life. What I want you to know is that kind of skepticism and unbelief and doubt is not something that was born in 2009 in Philadelphia. It was there first Sunday, Easter morning, in 33 A.D. Look at verse 11. The women burst into the room. They tell everybody that Jesus is alive. And what, what does it say? But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Luke says the, the word is an idle tale, like, you know, the Easter Bunny, and Santa Claus, and leprechauns, and Bigfoot, and Jesus back from the dead. I mean, just throw it all in the same bag and be done. Nobody believed in the resurrection. Throughout Luke 24, you're going to find a heavy and honest dose of skepticism everywhere. Luke doesn't hide it or try to cover it up. He'll tell you over and over again. You look at the women, and when they arrive to the empty tomb, when they see that the body's not there, they don't immediately run around going, Jesus has risen. In fact, Luke tells us the word is they were perplexed. They sort of scratched their heads, and they shifted around, and they tried to figure out what happened. In fact, the Gospels tell us that their first instinct is to say, who stole his body? I mean, where did his body go? The resurrection was not even in the realm of possibility. And then think about it. When they come and announce this news of his resurrection, after they've seen the angels and encountered Jesus, what do the men do? Verse 11 tells us that they thought it was an idle tale and they did not believe them. Just think about that. These aren't strangers that burst into the room. Women they've never seen before telling them about Jesus. These are women that they knew. These are fellow disciples of Jesus. These are women that help support Jesus' ministry and support them who walk together. These are women that they trusted. These are friends. And yet they couldn't believe the word of their friend because the resurrection just sounds ridiculous. 
the report is intriguing enough that some of the apostles, Peter for example, runs to the tomb to see for themselves. And they look down and they don't see the body. And so it tells us that Peter walks home marveling, astonished, amazed, but not convinced of the resurrection, not by a mile. Nobody knows what's going on. Doubt and skepticism is everywhere in Luke 24. Hardly anyone believes, and certainly not our two boys walking the seven-mile road. I need you to hear that. If you've got doubt, if you've got friends who have doubt, if you've got skepticism somewhere in your soul, there's room for that on the seven-mile road. The seven-mile road has room for skeptics. You see, we modern, sophisticated, educated people, we read back into this ancient text, and we assume that these primitive, naive, gullible people were just standing on the brink, waiting to believe in something crazy like the resurrection. That's not at all what you're going to find. Instead, you find that these two guys have a lot in common with the skeptical philosophy student at UPenn or the secular co-worker at your job who just thinks this whole thing is a joke, or even some of us who deep down have this nagging worry, like what if this thing isn't really true? You, you'll find a lot in common with these two guys. But here's the beautiful thing. On the Seven Mile Road, how does Jesus interact with them? He doesn't dismiss them for their doubt. He doesn't reject them for their skepticism. He doesn't deny them for their questions. Instead, he walks with them. And he talks with them. And he engages their doubt. And over the course of conversation and over the course of the journey, he overwhelms their skepticism with good evidence. To these skeptics, he gives irrefutable evidence. Throughout Luke 24, you're going to find himself and find Jesus showing himself to people, offering to them proof of his resurrection. You're going to see him walking with two guys so that they sense that he's near. They've felt him. They've seen him. He's going to break bread in their presence so that they know he's there. He's going to invite people all over the place to see that he's not a ghost, to touch his hands, to feel his feet, to see that he's flesh and bone, because ghosts don't have flesh and bone. He, he eats a piece of fried fish in their presence, to show them, look, spirits don't eat meals. Over and over again throughout the Gospels, he's going to provide these people with evidence. Now, if you're tracking with me, I know what you're thinking, which is, that's the problem. There may have been evidence for those guys then, but we don't see what they see. And we don't get to feel what they feel. We don't get to see it for ourselves like they did. There just isn't evidence like there was then. And I want to beg to differ. I want to contend that there is good evidence for you to consider and even to believe in the resurrection. I want to take it further and say that it's actually reasonable and that the resurrection is the best possible explanation for what has happened, for what had happened. You see, I'm not going to try and prove the resurrection. For one, history just doesn't work that way, right? In science, you can prove something because you can repeat an experiment and get the same result, and you can do it again and again and get the same result, and you can believe. History doesn't work that way. But just because you can't make George Washington cross the Delaware again doesn't mean you've got to stick your head in the sand and pretend it never happened. 
You can investigate, you can study, and you can reasonably believe. So it is with the resurrection. For example, the scriptures tell us that Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection. That for a period of 40 days, dozens of people, hundreds of people, claimed to have seen the risen Christ. You need to hear that. The resurrection is not the fabrication of one guy sitting in his basement writing a story. The resurrection is the eyewitness account of hundreds of people. I mean, you have any court case in Philadelphia where 500 people testify to the same thing and, and that case is done. I mean, that's just overwhelming evidence. So it is with the resurrection. By the time you get done with all the accounts, you find that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and to other women, to the apostles without Thomas and with Thomas, to disciples on the beach. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the passage we read, that Jesus appears to over 500 people at the same time. And then he adds this phrase, most of whom are still alive. That when he's writing 1 Corinthians 25 years after the resurrection, which is the time between the resurrection and when he wrote it, he says, 500 people saw the resurrection, most of whom are alive. He gives names. Why does he do that? Well, basically, that's Paul's way of inviting the critics of his day to test the credibility of his claim. He's saying, look, they're still alive. You can go ask them, interview them, find out if this is true. The common thinking is that the resurrection developed over hundreds of years. And yet, 25 years later, you get this claim. That's like saying, 25 years from now, if I stand up in a pulpit and I say, Seven Mile Road Church began with preview services. In April of 2009, for Easter, we gathered and we preached and we sang and we took the sacrament. And I said, you can check it out. Most of them are still alive. Don't you think that claim could be tested? Couldn't people go and interview, you know, a 50-year-old Sibi or Binu or email someone or t interrogate Shainu and ask them, you know, was that true? So it was with the resurrection. And in the first century, you, know, you find no accounts going against what Paul is saying. But some will say, look, Ajay, you might have some resurrection accounts, but isn't it a little convenient that Jesus appears to all these people who were inclined to believe in him? Isn't it a little strange that Jesus shows himself to all these people who wanted to believe that he was alive? Well, that's just not true. As nicely as I can say it, you just haven't done any homework, right? Because... One of the people that we hear saw Jesus is his brother, James. James is a guy, if you know his account, who thought Jesus was crazy. I mean, you can understand. If your older brother is walking around saying, I'm God, I forgive sins, worship me, you would say, let's lock him in the basement, let's not tell anyone we had him, right? I mean, let's get rid of him. And yet this same James ends up a pastor in Jesus' church and is stoned to death holding on to this claim, I saw him alive. What do you do with Saul, who becomes Paul? I mean, if there was any man not looking for Jesus, it's Saul. How do you explain the most vocal and violent and vehement opponent of Christianity becoming the most vocal proponent for Christianity? This guy killed Christians. He shut down churches. How is it that overnight he starts planting them? 
I mean, I say it all the time, but if tomorrow's headline said, Osama bin Laden applies for U.S. citizenship, or Osama bin Laden appointed to ambassador of the U.S., any rational thinking person would say, what happened? What caused that kind of a transformation? And Saul will tell you, I was not looking for him, but I saw Jesus. And he was alive, and well, that makes all the difference. Some will say, look, you can say what you want about the resurrections and all these accounts, but the truth is, Jay, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but the truth is, none of it happened. You're going to base all your evidence on this? Well, those just don't hold. The truth is that these accounts were made up by people who wanted to believe in Jesus. It's at best a, a, a myth or a legend, or worse, it's a lie, but it's, it's made up. It's not true. Well, there's just multiple problems with that. For one, if you consider the gospel accounts of the resurrection, you find that it's vastly different than other first century fiction. You see, you can't import 21st century understanding onto a first century book. You've at least got to see it in its own terms, in its own context. And when you lay this against other first century fiction, you find it's none the same. For example, we have today what's called modern prose fiction. That's just a fancy way of saying that when we tell a story, even if it's not true, we put all kinds of details. So we'll say the blonde-haired girl with the blue eyes walked three steps to the left and picked up the red flower. In the first century, you would find that the story goes, the girl picked up the flower. Right? That's just how they wrote. And yet, when you look at the Gospels, you, you, you find all kinds of details. Stuff like, they were walking to a village named Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. You read one resurrection account, it says they were fishing, and they gathered 153 fish. Where do you get that detail? Unless, perhaps, it's just an eyewitness account of what had happened. And even if the disciples were making up the story, there's just more problems. For one, think about who they said were the first witnesses of the resurrection. You read all four Gospels and you find women are at the scene of the tomb first. Think about the culture and the day in which these stories were told. This is first century Middle East. You talk to anyone and they'll tell you women were clearly second-class citizens in that day. In fact, you have quotes of rabbis who say that it'd be better to burn the whole law than to entrust it to a woman. You have men who used to praise God every day that God made them male and not female. To the point that a woman's testimony in that day was not even admissible in court. That means if a, if a girl saw somebody kill somebody, her word wouldn't hold up in court. Because nobody gave credibility to her claims. Well, then if you're going to convince the whole world of that day to believe that somebody came back from the dead, why would you make up that women were the first ones? This historian named N.T. Wright says that the first Christians must have felt intense pressure to get the women out of their story. Right? Like, pressure, like if you really want people to believe this whole Jesus thing, Let's just go straight to the Seven Mile Road story, or to him showing himself to Peter or Thomas. But let's get this whole thing with the girls out, because that is not going to go over well. Unless, 
unless it happened and they were just reporting what they saw. I mean, we, we could keep going. How, how do you explain the disciples dying? It's one thing to make up a story and grab some people and get them to buy in. It's another to die for that story. History tells us every one of them went to their death holding on to this claim, I saw him alive. Look, these aren't the most courageous guys. You read the accounts and you find out that they are a fearful bunch. You read about Peter and we're told that he's interrogated by a little slave girl and this guy basically wets his pants, swears by heaven that he's never seen Jesus in his whole life. And yet now this guy overnight is going to be crucified upside down holding on to this claim? Don't you think one of them would have broke? We're told the Apostle John was boiled in oil. I mean, if you're hovering over a pot of boiling oil, wouldn't you at least at that point go, I'm just kidding. We made the whole thing up. We're really sorry. We thought it would be funny. I mean, none of it. And yet everyone goes to their death saying they saw the one who came back from death. We really could keep going, but we've got more ground to cover. Just what I want to throw at you is, if you come to the seven-mile road with skepticism, with doubts, with questions, there's room for that. But would you allow Jesus to engage your doubts? Would you allow him to offer to you evidence for his resurrection? On the seven-mile road, Jesus meets two skeptics, and he meets them in their doubts. But he also meets these men in their religion. Not only does Jesus meet two skeptics, he meets two religious men, and he meets them in their religion. Look, the truth is, some of you have sat here patiently this whole time, and I'm thankful. But there isn't a bone in your body that does not believe in the resurrection. There, the whole time you're sitting here going, go get those skeptics and those unbelievers and those heathens because they need to know because there is nothing in you that doubts this. For many of you, you're sitting here and all of this, resurrection, parting of the Red Sea, miracles, plagues, you, you believe it all. You're comfortable in this whole religious world. Maybe you've never been to a church plant. That's a little weird. But other than that, this whole <laughs> God, religion, Bible, commandments, morality... Faith, all of that is second nature for you. You're perfectly at ease in this environment. Well, then I need you to know that you too can relate to the two men on the seven-mile road. You see, if there's a part of these men that are skeptical, there's an even greater part of these men that is religious. Let me say that again. If there's a part of these men that are skeptical... There's an even greater part that is religious. And on the seven-mile road, Jesus meets these two religious men in their religion. Let me tell you who Cleopas and his friend were who walked the seven-mile road. If they were here today, this is the, the guy whose mom literally birthed him into the church. He, he's been born into the church from day one. He grows up in Sunday school. This is the guy who prayer meetings, Bible studies, fasting prayers... I mean, he's done it all. Cleopas and his buddy are the guys who go through Sunday school and are in the youth group till they're like 40, right? You know the guy who's like 35 and is still in the youth league? <laughs> Your teenage daughter and you are both in the youth league. You probably should leave, right? That's Cleopas and his buddy. 
religion, church, God, all of that, I mean, they're completely at home. They've got that stuff down. The Bible, they know it cover to cover. There isn't a prophet you could tell them about that they couldn't quote. A story you could tell them that they didn't already know. A law that you could inform them about that they hadn't already obeyed. They're incredibly religious. But here's the thing. The very scary, sobering thing. These guys are unbelievably religious. And they miss the whole thing. These two men were the most moral, upright, decent, religious guys you will ever find. And they're blind to the whole thing. They spend their lives following God, and God is right next to them, and they haven't got the first clue. They, they are completely blind to Jesus, though He is right next to them. Do you know how scary that is? Do you know how easy it is to be religious and miss the whole gospel? Do you know how easy it is to be really moral and upright and decent and have all of that blind you to the fact that you do not know God, that you have not trusted in Him? Do you know that your morality and your decency and your religion could send you to hell as fast as the unbelief of the skeptic or the doubter? You see, if Jesus has something to say to the skeptical, secular student at UPenn, he has something to say to the church-going guy and girl at Seven Mile Road. He meets them in their religion. He shows them that they had missed the gospel by miles. How does he do that? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures concern, the things concerning himself. Listen, a lot of what we want to do at Seven Mile Road is expose the difference between religion and the gospel. If you're here and you think that religion and the gospel is the same thing, man, I invite you to stick around, because it's not. On the Seven Mile Road, Jesus reveals the gospel to these religious men, and it is something they never knew. If on the Seven Mile Road, he confronts the skeptic with evidence, on the Seven Mile Road, he opens the scriptures to these religious men in a way that they had never seen it before. You see, these guys had read their scriptures their whole lives thinking that this book was telling them what they needed to do to get to God rather than seeing that this whole book was about what God had done to get to them. I'll say that again because maybe you're in the same boat. Religion reads the scriptures and the whole thing is about what you have to do to get to God. The gospel says that the scriptures show you everything that God has done in Christ to get to you. You see, in religion, you read the Bible and you see yourself everywhere. Right? You read about David and now it's about you because you've got to beat the giants in your life. You read about Daniel and now you see yourself because 
You've got to pray three times a day in your room with the door closed like Daniel. Everywhere you go, this book is about you. But in the gospel, the scriptures are about Jesus. And he is everywhere. Look at what he did with these two guys. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed them all the things concerning himself. He begins to show these guys the scriptures in a way that they had never seen it before. The gospel reads the scriptures so differently. Because now you go to Adam and Eve and they're standing by a tree. And they're disobeying God and they're getting judgment upon themselves and all of us who follow after. And they fail in the garden. And now your mind begins to race ahead and you see that this is preparing you for the second Adam. The one who would come and obey by a tree. And die upon that tree. And bear the judgment for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve upon that tree. And that where they fail, this second Adam rises in the garden. You begin to see the, the Bible differently. Now you go to the Old Testament and you read about the lambs that were being slaughtered and sacrificed. As each person of Israel would bring a spotless lamb without defect, without blame, and slaughter it on the altar, letting its blood drip, their sins transferred to this beast. And now your mind begins to race forward and you see that this is preparing you for the true Lamb of God. The one who would come upon whom the sins of the world are placed. The one who would hang upon that cross and let his body be broken and his blood be spilled for the forgiveness of all. Except unlike those lambs, this one would not be needed to be repeated because once and for all he was sacrificed. You read about Jonah. You, you read this reluctant prophet who's called to go to the nations. But before he can do that and bring them the news of salvation, he spends three days in the belly of a whale. Sort of a watery grave. He's as good as dead. And yet on the third day, he is spit back to life. And reluctantly, hesitantly, he calls for the nation to repent and believe and be saved. And your mind begins to race forward and see that this is preparing you for the true prophet of God. The one who would come joyfully and gladly to announce salvation. The one who would spend three days in the tomb, but on the third day was brought back to life and now gladly calls the nations to repentance and faith in him. Last, maybe you read about Daniel. And, and you see this faithful prophet or this faithful man of God whose enemies hated him and trumped up false charges against him, who was arrested while in prayer, who was reluctantly handed over to death by the king, and the rock rolled over him and thrown into the pit of lions, and he's as good as dead. And yet when the rock is rolled back, he's alive. And now your mind begins to race forward, and you see that this is actually preparing you for the true servant of God, who is faithful to him in all things who was arrested while in prayer, trumped up on false charges by his enemies, who was handed over to the lions. Except this time, this true servant was devoured, his body broken, his blood shed. The rock rolled over him, and when the rock was rolled back, he who should have been dead stands alive. The gospel sees it all 
different. You see, in religion, you keep thinking about what you've got to do to get to God. These men had no idea that the death of Jesus would mean for them the redemption of their souls. They said, we had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. They have no idea. The gospel is so different. And on that road, Jesus shows them that in the beginning, God had created a good world. And you and me to enjoy God and one another forever. And our sin has fractured all of that. And we find ourselves alienated from God. And man, there are not enough prayers you can pray. Not enough Easter services you can attend. Not enough Good Fridays, communions, baptism, giving to the poor. There is nothing you can do to get to Him. And then, God sends His Son. Who lives the life that you were supposed to live but couldn't. And dies the death you were supposed to die but didn't. And on the third day he is risen again. And now for all of us who would repent. That is we stop playing religion. We stop pretending we're good. We acknowledge we're bad. And, and confess. And, and to all of us would repent and believe. That is we stop trusting in ourselves and in our ability to get to him. But throw ourselves to the mercy of Christ. To all who would repent and believe, this God now offers his gospel. These two men heard the scriptures and something began burning in their hearts. Look, if, there, if the Spirit would stir even a little part of your heart to just consider, maybe I've been about religion and not the gospel. Well, there's room for that on the Seven Mile Road. Because Jesus meets them in their religion. Would you let him expose your religion and instead come to see the gospel? On the Seven Mile Road, you find the skeptic and the religious person coming and the, G the risen Lord Jesus confronting both. And so that's what we want to do today. That's what we want this church to be about. Ultimately, when we gather on Easter Sunday, we haven't come to believe just facts with our head like a skeptic, or even just be engaged in our heart like a churchgoer, we've come to let our whole being meet Jesus Christ. These two men encounter him on the road. How? How does that happen? How can it happen even today? I have really good news. It happens in really ordinary ways. How do these guys meet him? They're just walking a road. They're just having conversation. They're just asking questions. They're just opening the scriptures. They're just sharing a meal. And through that all, they see Jesus. I know that you expect lightning bolts from the sky and the email from heaven saying this is God before you'll believe. You, you don't find any of that. Instead, where two or three or ten or twenty people share the journey together, and ask questions together, and wrestle with doubt together, and open the scriptures together. Through it all, in really ordinary, plain ways, Jesus is revealed. And, and, and when it clicks, when they see, everything changes. Right? These two men start off on the road disappointed, sad, devastated. The last thing you see is them sprinting seven miles back to tell everyone they can about the one they had met. That's our hope for our lives. That's our hope for this church. We're just a baby church. We're just getting started. But our deep hope is that this would be a place 
where if you've grown up in church your whole life, or if you've never believed any of this, that together we might walk together, that, that we might share the journey, and in community, wrestling with doubt, talking about our questions, sharing meals, sharing life, and through it all, we're seeing Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. So we invite you to walk the seven-mile road with us, but more than anything, we invite you to meet Jesus even today. Let's pray.